Chapter Six of the Town Traveler by George Gissing. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: The Head Waiter at Chaffee's. Polly Sparks had a father. That Mister Sparks still lived was not known to the outer circles of Polly's acquaintance. She never spoke of her family, and it was not easy to think of Polly in the filial relation. For some years she had lived in complete independence, now and then exchanging a letter with her parent, but seeing him rarely. Not that they were on ill terms. Unpleasantness of that kind had been avoided by their satisfaction in living apart. Polly sometimes wished she had a father to be proud of, a sufficiently intelligible phrase on Polly's lips, but for the rest she thought of him with tolerance, as a good, silly sort of man who couldn't help himself, that is to say, could not help being what he was. And Mr. Sparks was a waiter, had been a waiter for some thirty years, and would probably pursue the calling as long as he was fit for it. In this fact he saw nothing to be ashamed of. It had never occurred to him that anyone could or should be ashamed of the position, Nevertheless, Mr. Sparks was a disappointed, even an embittered man, and that for a subtle reason, which did credit to his sensibility. All his life he had been employed at Chaffee's. As a boy of ten, he joined Chaffee's in the capacity of plate-washer. Zeal and conduct promoted him, and seniority made him at length head-waiter. In those days Chaffee's was an eating-house of the old kind, one long room with boxes, beef its staple dish, its drink a sound porter at two pence a pint. How many thousand times had Mr. Spark shouted the order, One alley mode! The chief, almost the only variant, was One ot, which signified a cut from the boiled round, served, of course, with carrots and potatoes, remarkable for their excellence. Midday dinner was the only meal recognized at Chaffee's. From twelve to half-past two, the press of business kept everyone breathless and perspiring. Before and after these hours, little, if anything, was looked for, and at four o'clock the establishment closed its doors. But it came to pass that the proprietor of Chaffee's died, and the business fell into the hands of a young man with new ideas, Within a few months, Chaffee's underwent a transformation. It was pulled down, rebuilt, enlarged, beautified, nothing left of its old self but the name. In place of the homely eating-house, there stood a large hall, painted and gilded and set about with mirrors, furnished with marble tables and cane-bottomed chairs. To all appearances, a restaurant on the France-Italian pattern. Yet Chaffee's remained English, flagrantly English, in its viands and its waiters. The new proprietor aimed at combining foreign glitter with the prices and the entertainment acceptable to a public of small means. Moreover, he prospered. The doors were now open from nine o'clock in the morning to twelve at night. There was a bar for the supply of alcoholic drinks. The traditional porter had always been fetched from a neighboring house and frivolities such as tea and coffee were in constant demand. The change told grievously upon Mr. Sparks. At the first mention of it, he determined to resign, but the weakness in his character shrank from such a decided step, and he allowed himself to be drawn into a painfully false position. 
the proprietor did not wish to lose him. Mr. Sparks was a slim, upright, grave-featured man, whose deportment had its market value. His side-whiskers and shaven lip gave him a decidedly clerical aspect, which, together with long experience and a certain austerity of command, well fitted him for superintending the younger waiters. His salary was increased. His tips represented a much larger income than heretofore. At the old Chaffee's, every diner gave him a penny, whilst at the new he often received tuppence, and customers were much more numerous. But every copper he pouched cost Mr. Sparks a pang of humiliation. His, thank you, sir, had the urbanity which had become mechanical, but more often than not he sneered inwardly, despising himself and those upon whom he waited. To one person alone did he exhibit all the bitterness of his feelings, and that was Mrs. Clover, the sister of his deceased wife. With her he occasionally spent a Sunday evening in the parlor behind the china shop, and there would speak the thoughts that oppressed him. It isn't that I've any quarrel with the foreign restaurants, Louisa. They're all right in their way. They suit a certain public, and they charge certain prices. But what I do think is mean and low, mean and low, is to be neither one thing nor the other, to make a sort of show, as if you was I Kloss, and then have it known as you're the cheapest of the cheap. Potatoes! That I should live to see Chaffee's handing out such potatoes! They're more like food for pigs, and I've known the day when Chaffee's would have thrown them at the head of anybody as delivered em such awful. It isn't a place for a self-respecting man, and I feel it more and more. If a shop boy wants to take out his sweetheart and make a pretense of doing it grand, where does he go to? Why, to Chaffee's. He couldn't afford a real restaurant. But Chaffee's looks the same, and Chaffee's is cheap. To hear him ordering roast fowl and camembert cheese to follow, it fair sickens me. Roast fowl. A old N as wouldn't be good enough for a real restaurant to make enter soup. And the camembert, I've got my private idea, Louisa, about what that camembert is made of. And when I think of the Cheshire and the cheddar we used to top up with, it's heartbreaking. From a speaker with such a countenance, all this was very impressive. Mrs. Clover shook her head and wondered what England was coming to. In return, she would tell of the people who came to her shop to hire cups and saucers just to make a show when they had a friend to tea with them. There was much of the right spirit in both these persons, for they sincerely despised shams, though they were not above profiting by the snobberies of others. But Mrs. Clover found amusement in the state of things, whereas Mr. Sparks grew more despondent the more he talked, and always added with a doleful self-reproach, if I'd been half a man, I should have left. They'd have taken me on at Simpkins, I know they would, or at the old city chop-house, if I'd waited for a vacancy. Who'd take me on now? Why, they'd throw it in my face that I came from Chaffee's, and I shouldn't have half a word to say for myself. It was very seldom that he received a written invitation from his sister-in-law, but he heard from her in these hot days of June that she particularly wished to see him as soon as possible. The message, he thought, must have some reference to Mrs. Clover's husband, whose reappearance at any moment would have been no great surprise, 
even after an absence of six years. Mr. Sparks had a strong objection to mysterious persons. He was all for peace and comfort in a familiar routine, and for his own part had often hoped that the man Clover was by this time dead and buried. Responding as soon as possible to Mrs. Clover's summons, he found that she wished to speak to him about his daughter. Mrs. Clover showed herself seriously disturbed by Polly's recent behavior. She told of the newly acquired jewelry, of the dresses in which Miss Sparks went flaunting, of the girl's scornful refusal to answer natural inquiries. "'The long and the short of it is, Ebenezer, you ought to see her and find out what's going on. There may be nothing wrong, and I don't say there is, but that watch and chain of hers wasn't bought under twenty pounds. That I'll answer for, and it's a very queer thing, to say the least of it. What business was it of mine?' she asked. I shouldn't wonder if she says the same to you, but it's your plain duty to have a talk with her, don't you think so now? To have a talk with Polly, especially on such a subject, was no easy or pleasant undertaking for Mr. Sparks, who had so long resigned all semblance of parental authority. But as a conscientious man he could not stand aside when his only surviving daughter seemed in peril. After an exchange of postcards, a meeting took place between them on the embankment below Waterloo Bridge, for neither father nor child had anything in the nature of a home beyond the indispensable bedroom, and their only chance of privacy was in the open air. Having no desire to quarrel with her parent, it would have been so very one-sided and uninspiriting, Polly began in a conciliatory tone. Aunt Louisa's been making a bother, hasn't she? Just like her. Don't you listen to her fussicking, Dad. What's all the row about? I've had a present given to me. Well, what of that? You can look at it for yourself. I can't tell you who give it to me, cause I promised I wouldn't. But you'll know some day, and then you'll larf. It ain't nothing to fret your gizzard about, so there. I'm old enough to look after myself, and if I ain't, I never shall be, so there. This did not satisfy Mr. Sparks. He saw that the watch and chain were certainly valuable, and he could not imagine how the girl had become honorably possessed of them, save as the gift of an admirer. But the mere fact of such an admirer's exacting secrecy implied a situation of danger. "'I don't like the look of it, Polly,' he remarked, with a nervous attempt to be severe. "'All right, Dad, then don't like the look of it. The watch is good enough for me.' It took Mr. Sparks two or three minutes to understand this joke. Whilst he was reflecting upon it, a thought suddenly passed through his mind, which startled him by its suggestiveness. Polly? Well, it ain't your Uncle Clover, is it? The girl laughed loudly as if at a preposterous question. Him? Why, I've as good as forgot there was such a man. What do you mean? Why, I shouldn't know him if I saw him. What made you think of that? Oh, I don't know. Who knows when and where he may turn up or what he'll do? That's a good un. My Uncle Clover, indeed. Whatever put that into your head? Her ejaculations of wonder and disdain continued until the close of the interview, and Mr. Sparks went his way, convinced that Polly was being pursued by some wealthy man, probably quite unprincipled, the kind of man who frequents proper restaurants, and sits in the stalls at the theatres, 
where doubtless Polly had made his acquaintance. After brooding a day or two on this idea, he procured a sheet of the cheapest notepaper and sat down in his bedroom, high up at Chaffee's, to compose a letter for his daughter's behoof. Dear Polly, I write you these few lines to say that the more I think about you and your way of carrying on, the less I like the look of it. And the sooner I make that plain to you, the better for both of us, and I'm sure you'll think the same. You are that strong-headed, my girl, but listen to the warnings of experience who have seen a great deal of the wicked world, and cannot hope to see much more of it at my present age. There will come a day when you will wish that you could hear of me by a note to Chaffee's, but such will not be. Before it's too late, I take up the pen to say these few words, which is this. I have always been a respectable and a saving man, which I hope to be until I am no more. What I mean to say is this. Chaffee's is not what it used to be, but I have laid by, and when it comes to the solemn hour, then Mr. Walker has promised to make my will. All I want to say is that there may be more than you think for, and if you are respectable, I think it most likely all will be yours. But listen to this. If you disgrace yourself, my girl, not one halfpenny, nor yet one sixpenny piece, will you receive from your affectionate father, Ebenezer Sparks. P.S. This is wrote in a very serious mind. This epistle at once pleased and angered Polly. Though a greedy, she was not a mercenary young woman. She had little cunning, and her vulgar ambitions were consistent with a good deal of honest feeling. To do her justice, she had never considered the possibility that her father might have money to bequeath. His disclosure surprised her, and caused her to reflect for the first time that Chaffee's head-waiter had long held a tolerably lucrative position, whilst his expenses must have been trivial. So much the better for her. On the other hand, she strongly resented his suspicions and warnings. In the muddled obscurity of Polly's consciousness, there was a something which stood for womanly pride. She knew very well what dangers perpetually surrounded her, and she contrasted herself with the girls who weakly or recklessly threw themselves away. Divided thus between injury and gratitude, she speedily answered her father's letter, writing upon a sheet of scented grass-green notepaper, deeply ribbed, which made her pen blot, splutter, and sprawl far more than it would have done on a smooth surface. Dear Dad, in reply to yours, what I have to say is, Aunt Louisa and Mrs. Bubb are nasty cats, and I don't thank them for making a bother. It is very kind of you about your will, though I'm sure, if you believe me, I don't want yet to see you in your grave. And what I do think is you might have a better opinion of your daughter, and I think all the bad things you can turn your mind to. And if it is me that dies first, you will be sorry for the wrong you done me. So I will say no more, dear Dad, from your loving Polly. End of chapter 6 Recording by Arnold Banner, Mount Airy, North Carolina